Welcome to Prevention Is Now. I'm Deb Bonner, preventionist and community advocate for Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault in Springfield, Illinois. If I were to tell you this episode of Prevention Is Now, we'll be dealing with Title IX issues and sexual harassment and violence. You would likely assume that we would be talking about college-age students and the very real issue of sexual violence on college campuses, but we aren't. Sexual harassment and violence in K-12 schools is also a very real issue and significantly underreported. The U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights Data Collection reported sexual violence in schools rose over 50% from approximately 9,600 reports in the 2015-16 school year to almost 15,000 in the 2017-18 school year. In 2011, the American Association of University Women found that slightly less than half of 7th through 12th grade students reported experiencing sexual harassment in the past year, yet only 21% of the corresponding schools reported having any allegations of sexual harassment at all. The disparity between these two numbers is a combination of factors. First, many cases of sexual harassment and violence go unreported by the survivor for a variety of reasons. However, not every state tracks the number of reports they do receive. Unlike colleges who are required by the Clary Act to report issues of sexual violence, there are no such mandates for elementary or secondary schools. In fact, only 32 states, along with the District of Columbia, track sexual assaults. Complicating matters further, there is a lack of consistency on what acts constitute sexual assault. And states don't track consistently. An Associated Press survey of state education departments from fall of 2011 through spring of 2015 found that while some states require school districts to report any incident of sexual assault at school-sponsored events, many only reported incidents that led to certain types of discipline for the perpetrator, such as suspension or expulsion. In Illinois, the state education department does not collect data on student sexual assaults, though Chicago Public Schools keeps its own accounting. However, Illinois does require training aimed at preventing, reporting, or responding to student-on-student sexual assault. Another complicating factor is that many parents and kids are often unaware of the protections Title IX mandates for students in grades K-12 in schools receiving federal funding. Additionally, it is more common for administrators at this level to be unaware of what their obligations are under federal law and often lack qualified Title IX coordinators. Ultimately, this leaves us with a serious lack of reliable data to fully understand the issue of what needs to be done to prevent sexual violence in our children's schools and poorly trained staff in charge of whatever prevention efforts are currently in place. Joining us to help us better understand the full scope of the issue is Heidi Goldstein, the board chair for Stop Sexual Assault in Schools, a nonprofit organization that was specifically created to address sexual harassment and assault and K-12 students' rights. She is also a member of the Berkeley Unified School District Sexual Harassment Advisory Committee and an adult advisor to the student grassroots advocacy organization BHS Stop Harassing. Heidi, welcome to the show. Hi, Deb. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Now, as we get started, first, can you tell us what led to the formation of BHS Stop Harassing and what the students have been doing? Sure. First, understand that Berkeley High School is a four-year high school with 3,200 students. It's so big that students fall through the cracks, social, emotional, academic, and yet it is so small that there are a few secrets. Juicy news travels at wire speed, and everyone has an opinion. In the fall of 2014, the Spark event was a set of rape culture comments made by the Dean of Students at the welcome assemblies that all students attend at the beginning of the school year. The Dean was speaking about the sexual harassment policy at the high school and in particular made a comment about how girls dress and not inviting problems. 
So this prompted a senior to stand up from the back of a crowded auditorium and say, you can't say that. And there was an ensuing dialogue during one of these sessions that absolutely ignited senior girls. And the reason it ignited them is there was a longer term issue at Berkeley High School and a culture of sexual harassment. And this welcome assembly was, you know, the senior girls basically saying, we've had enough of this. We've got to do something about this. My older daughter, Liana, was a senior that year. And she and a small core group, some of them friends, some of them other girls she didn't know nearly so well, were motivated to do everything they could to try to bring this issue to light. So that was seven years ago. And DHS Stop Harassing has been running as a grassroots collective with adult advisors ever since. And I am an adult advisor. It started not as a club, and that was intentional, because the school and the school district were actually fairly hostile to what the organization was doing. Some of the early initiatives included a two-day teach-in at the park across the street from the high school during school hours to educate students about knowing their Title IX rights, about knowing what rape culture is, and about knowing what they could do. It also involved getting signatures to a petition so that the school district would hire a full-time Title IX coordinator, which they didn't have at that time. The students also testified at school board meetings, fairly detailed, fairly graphic, about what their experiences were with sexual harassment at Berkeley Unified. And their students, they were great at getting just this tremendous media coverage, radio, press, and television for, for their events. So they were heard loud and clear. As BHS Stop Harassing has progressed over the years, it's picked up other initiatives. It does survivor support. It meets weekly. It conducts survey and does data collection of the prevalence of sexual harassment and perception of student safety at the high school. It does near-peer counseling, high school students to middle school students. It works on culture shift programs the high school and does cross-club collaboration to try to gain momentum. About three years ago, it started a very robust student education program for incoming ninth graders that talked about consent, sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexting, what the school's process was if something happened to a student. And this really is the only education right now that is consistently and reliably given to students at Berkeley Unified. And in 2020, right before COVID hit in February, there were a series of events that suggested that our school district still was vastly underinvested in the apparatus for Title IX and dealing with sexual harassment. And the students led a series of rallies that culminated in a march from the high school to the district office about a mile away, about a thousand students, a third of the school. And they occupied the school district building. So the superintendent needed to come out, meet with them. They had a day-long session of discussions about the list of demands. So this is a sampling of what BHS Stop Harassing does. And it really is student-led as an adult advisor. I support. Sometimes I do some banking. Sometimes I do some logistics. But somebody, you know, who can contract as a, an adult can do. But the, the students drive it. And they always have. That, that is just an incredible model for any school to follow. 
I would think, in helping to get students, because students are going to listen to students a lot better than they are to an assembly where everybody's there or the handbook that they get handed out at the beginning of the school year. Totally. And the students are closest to the issues. No one knows it better than them. Now, one of the details that really stood out to me and it keeps coming up in all the articles that I read in preparing for this, is that parents and students simply don't know that they have rights and protections under Title IX. Almost everybody thinks of that either in terms of athletics or in college. They don't really think about it in K-12 through situations. Are the schools just failing to let people know? Is it something else? I mean, where is the disconnect? Why don't pe- more people know about this? There are so many reasons that public schools don't execute on Title IX. But let let me take the the top three that I've found in in my experience. And the first one is really fundamental, and that is that trained educators focus on three metrics. They focus on graduation or progression from grade to grade. They focus on proficiency in language arts, and they focus on proficiency in mathematics. And this is the basis of their training, and it's how they're evaluated. So at a very basic level, administrators and teachers don't necessarily connect that student safety and access to school resources, you know, in the face of an event like sexual harassment or sexual assault, really are directly related to these metrics. They miss it entirely and instead see that this is sort of an ancillary thing, an unfunded mandate that they're supposed to address. And if they don't see that connection, what they don't understand is that when there are incidents that are unsupported and unreconciled, students are going to fail. They're going to drop out of school. They're going to retreat to independent study programs. They might do a graduate equivalency diploma. If they don't address this aspect of student safety and engagement, they're going to fail on their major metrics. And that, that is the biggest gap that I have seen, and it's not necessarily an obvious one. The second item is that training is terrible across school districts on this topic. Money is part of it, but I think there's a a larger component, which is the, the notion of educator training is often called professional development. And there's a whole industry around this, as you might imagine. And Title IX and these kinds of issues are not seen as professional development. They're seen as compliance training. So another example of compliance training might be mandatory reporter training. Every person who works at the school district is responsible for looking out for minor youth who may be abused or neglected and has an obligation to call in to the local authorities if they have a suspicion. And, you know, mandatory reporting is serious, right? The online training that most school districts give is terrible. And I've taken it. I know this personally. It's about 20 minutes, and it's a check-the-box kind of training. So similarly, for Title IX training, and Title IX is complex, right? If they do training at all, it is a check-the-box kind of compliance training. And it is very general, and it really doesn't speak to the specifics of how a particular school district might actually build and operate their Title IX apparatus to handle incidents. So that's another reason why school districts fall down. Nobody really knows 
how it works or what the process is. And thirdly, the, the issues are really messy and they're complicated. So while a school district probably has a policy about Title IX, state laws typically require it, many districts really don't invest in the infrastructure that they need to run a Title IX response something that can investigate, that can adjudicate, that can remediate or, or correct. So when incidents arise, they sort of ad hoc the whole thing. So it's not a surprise that they're not explaining this to students, guardians, parents, the school community, because they don't really know the process themselves. A good way to evaluate as a, a parent or a member of the school community, if your school district has a process is look at the parent-student handbook or look at the website to see how cohesive their description is. If it's a policy, sort of standalone by itself, not a good sign. There ought to be forms that show how to report. There ought to be some narrative. And it's a, it's a good way to do a very quick diagnosis as to whether or not a, a school district has it together at all. You can't really explain a process if you don't have an infrastructure to support it. And maybe what I'll add is a fourth one because I, I can't resist it, which is there's a lot of complexity when issues of sexual harassment and assault happen. Some education code in some states sees it as a disciplinary problem, warranting a suspension or an expulsion. Over the, the decade of the 20 teens, there was a big effort to reduce disproportionate discipline is what it was called. And that was suspensions or expulsions, particularly for students of color or students in other marginalized groups, disabled, LGBTQ, things like that. School districts really don't typically invest a lot of money in the kinds of climate programs or the kinds of restorative justice programs or dispute resolution programs that need to go hand in hand when there are issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And if you don't want to fall back to discipline, but you don't have any remediative programs, you just as soon ignore it. And often that's what happens. Now, Title IX is part of the Education Amendments Act of 1972. It's been in effect for almost 50 years. Uh, despite the fact that Title IX is not new, the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights reports that sexual violence complaints filed against elementary and secondary schools increased over 200% between fiscal years 2010 and 2019. As these investigations and lawsuits were being filed, obviously scrutiny was also increasing. Why is this happening? Yet many K-12 schools are completely out of compliance. What are some of the biggest compliance issues you see? And beyond what you've already described, why do you think that these may be continuing to happen? So, Deb, I'd actually like to start by reframing the dynamic a little bit. Compliance is sort of an externally enforced obligation that is visited upon you. And most people really sort of bristle at having to comply. You know, nobody's given me any money to do it. I may not understand why I have to do it. And you are not the boss of me kind of dynamic starts to arise. It would be so much better if school districts understood that Title IX is actually a core pillar in their educational mission to ensure that every student is supported, that every student is deserving, and that every student receives the best possible education that that school district can provide. So that whole notion of compliance is a little fraught that way. 
a big reason it's problematic is that equity issues really underlie a lot of the problem here. Any school district needs to ensure that all of its students are benefiting and that all of its students, you know, especially marginalized groups, black, brown, LGBTQ, are supported and seen as deserving when something happens to them. And that doesn't always happen. And that is really a function of embedded bias that may exist at school districts. Some school districts are very aware of this and work very hard to address this. And others, you know, don't care. Sometimes that bias is more based on athletics in school districts where athletics are a big deal. This is a very common story. You know, the football player assaults a cheerleader. This has actually happened at at my local high school. And football matters. And the player is really good. And they don't want him to get in trouble, right? So, you know, all of a sudden, this gets sidelined. So there are just any number of embedded biases in a school district that are going to guide how they handle their Title IX and where they think it applies and where it doesn't. I would say the last item, you know, beyond bias is also expense, right? This is not, guys, let's all put on a show. And people don't come to school districts with detailed knowledge about how to handle this. And it takes time and money to set up a Title IX office that is staffed by people who really understand the law, who have empathy and can work with students in a way that, you know, students will come and report and seek out help. And again, this issue of discipline versus remediation or some other form of correction, most school districts haven't thought much about this and would prefer not to think about it. And when you consider it as a a compliance issue, sexual harassment or assault happens and you've got to do something, when you don't have a clear vision as the administrator of the school district about what happens next, aside from, gee, I wish this weren't on my radar at all. The answer is nothing happens, and the students who are the survivors or the victims of this tend to get the short end of the stick, and they tend to leave. Now, do you think that Title IX can even be an effective set of guidelines for schools to follow since it it is so complicated? I mean, and you, you throw in the complications of all the changes that went into effect last year when Betsy DeVos and her administration made all of those changes. And now the Biden administration is promising to roll those changes back. So everything is in flux. And you're also dealing with such huge age ranges. I mean, you've got six-year-olds all the way up to college students. And you're dealing with such very different dynamics. Would it make more sense, really, for elementary and secondary schools to really have their own unique set of guidelines and regulations? Well, in a word, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe a little more broadly discussed. Title IX is such a special part of the U.S. Code. And part of that is because its interpretation and its application have evolved radically since it was first established almost 50 years ago. Back in the old days, everyone thought Title IX was about equal investment in athletics. You know, girls should get equipment, they should get playing fields. And a lot of people still think that's what Title IX is. Catherine McKinnon, a legal scholar, started looking at this in the 1970s and writing about it. And it was really concretized in a legal case called Alexander versus Yale, which was in 1980, where Title IX became established as a lever 
for addressing really how sex discrimination worked in educational environments. And it started to become a law that could be used to say, hey, you know, this is a problem and this needs to be fixed. So, right, that's at the college level. And, you know, we start to establish that Title IX can apply. But it's also sort of a special law because it gives protections and remedies to all students. And that includes minors, as you've pointed out. And they are a constituency that has such different support needs across a wide range of age and agency, right? You can find some very sophisticated middle schoolers, and you can find some very juvenile high schoolers. And they all have to deal with the same issues when there is a problem of sexual harassment or assault. They have to come forward. They have to feel comfortable enough to come forward. They have to be able to tell their story. They have to sort of manage their affairs while this is being investigated. And for a kid at middle school, a student at high school, this is really tough because you're changing classes. You're possibly seeing that person who, you know, assaulted you. You are dealing with retaliation. And make no mistake, at the high school level, at the middle school level, social retaliation is alive and well. The news travels fast. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone takes a side. And it's really ugly. So it's problematic that Title IX is structured in such a way that it, it doesn't address those things at all, and it could, structured differently. Another problem is that Title IX is really sort of a quasi-criminal procedure, and this was really embedded in the August 2020 regulations that the Department of Education under Betsy DeVos put forward. And most people in their day-to-day -day life don't deal in criminal procedure. School administrators don't deal in it. Parents or guardians of students don't deal with it. It's mystifying to them, and they don't know how to navigate it. So, yes, the complexity of Title IX and these issues that sit for K-12 populations totally calls for a revamp of those regulations. We're speaking with Heidi Goldstein, the board chair for Stop Sexual Assault in Schools. To me, it seems that part of the issue may be that schools themselves are just not even recognizing sexual harassment and sexual assault when they see it. It's written off as bullying. It's written off as kids being kids or simply even denying the fact that it happened. Oh, kids are too young to be acting like that. Do we need to be focusing prevention efforts on educating faculty and staff first before we start putting prevention towards the kids themselves? It really needs to be a broad effort across all fronts. It's, without boiling the ocean, this is one of those dynamics where it's really important to recognize that across the whole stakeholder spectrum, everyone has a different role. It's critical to have education for students because they need to understand how to keep themselves safe and when someone has crossed a line and what they can do about that. There are very few bad actors in a school district. Typically, it's some number of perpetrators. They are serial perpetrators, whether they are fellow students or, you know, the unfortunate incident where it is staff or teachers. As an employer, the school district has the obligation, yes, to make sure that its employees understand what conduct is and isn't tolerated, but they have an additional obligation because they are custodians of minor children. And they also need to educate their employees about how to keep those minor children safe. 
So it's a two-parter, students and employees of the school district. And again, because students are minor children, typically, they have parents and guardians. And you've got an obligation to make sure the parents and guardians understand how this works, what protections the school provides, and what processes the school has when something goes wrong. You really need to hit them all at the same time. I'm going to throw you a curveball here. Let's talk about the involvement of social media, because you were talking about retaliation being live and well. I, I know right now it's, it's an, an entirely different scenario, but it's going before the Supreme Court uh, about a girl wanting to have the right to say, you know, having freedom of speech and her social media away from school. How, because, and there are so many tragic stories out there. How do schools manage social media when it's referring to something that happened within the school dynamic? Do they have the authority? Do they need to be granted the authority? I mean, this is a really tricky scenario. And I think, sadly, it's, it's, it's not one that's going away and it's only going to get worse. I agree with you. And I think the short answer is how do schools manage it? inconsistently might, might be my one word answer. I think the court case you're talking about is a young woman in Pennsylvania who on her social media used the F-bomb for a, a number of, of comments. And they had to do with things that pertain to her experience at school. And the school district said, you can't do that. And I've, I've got to say, Deb, this was so ironic to me because when the Title IX rules were an open comment period in 2019 for the 2020 final rules, there was a lot of discussion about school districts' obligations to manage social media posts or support students who might be experiencing retaliation at school when there was something in the cyber world that, again, manifested back at school as a problem for that student's safety, or access to educational resources. And ironically, the Department of Education, you know, kind of put up the blinders and said, oh, no, you know, we, we don't do off-campus, physical off-campus presence. We don't do cyber. That, that's not an educational institution's responsibility. And yet, here is the Supreme Court ruling, right, that is in favor of the school. So I would say the American judicial system doesn't have a consistent view on this either. My view is that the standard that you use to decide whether a school has that obligation is if it comes back to roost in the student's ability to attend school safely without social retaliation and access the wealth of educational resources that that school has to offer. If something about social media impinges on that, then yes, I believe the school needs to act. Now, Stop Sexual Assault in Schools offers a prevention program called Sexual Harassment Not in Our Schools through your website. Can you walk us through how that particular program works and what it is? Sure, I'd be glad to. So we established that program shortly after Stop Sexual Assault in Schools started. It, it came in parts. It, now it is its own robust thing. But we built it bit by bit. And I think probably in 2016 is when the bulk of it was assembled. So it's, it's been around now for, for several years. It is sometimes I call it activism in a box. The idea of this is it is a set of free materials that were developed 
so that youth in particular and their allies, who may be adults, who may be other youth, can really understand what is sexual harassment at school in an educational environment and what can you do about it if you're concerned about it or you have it at your school. So it is multimodal. It's got videos. It's got an activist guide for youth. It has an activist guide for adults. It has surveys. It has template documents that you can use to write to administrators about various concerns. It, it certainly doesn't cover every possible circumstance, but it is a way for someone who is just sort of starting their inquiry into, hey, what can I do about this? To look and say, wow, you know, there there are definitely some areas of focus. There are definitely some concrete steps. And Stop Sexual Assault in Schools also offers basically our collective expertise in supporting students, youth, advocates who want to start addressing these issues. So it, it certainly doesn't cover all cases, but it's, it's a great place to start. We also provide and have built since that time a series of toolkits that are also on our website that really help people understand or sort of get a grip on what are the issues around a variety of different topics. So, for example, we have one that is about how to gather information about a school district's Title IX policy. Another is a Title IX compliance checklist. A different one is what to do if you experience sexual harassment or assault at the hands of a student, at the hands of a school employee. So really, there are several that have come out of that since. And I would say also what has come out of that program since is what we now call our youth leadership division, which is students who were so interested in this that they volunteered with our organization to help develop documents from a student perspective, directed to a student perspective about how this works, and who also collaborate on our behalf with other organizations that are also developing toolkits. So, for example, recently we worked with the National Women's Law Center on the student toolkit for their 100 school districts campaign, which they released in the spring. Now, your organization also started an awareness campaign called uh, Me Too K-12, little hashtag. Can you tell us a little bit about that campaign, what its goals were, what kind of response that you've received? You bet. Um, I love the hashtag campaigns. And for youth in particular, social media hashtag campaigns is, frankly, how you reach them most effectively. So this was launched in early 2018. So it was part of the larger Me Too campaign that you might remember started in October of 2017. Largely, the movie and that grouping of, you know, celebrity folks, it got a lot of attention. It got a lot of airtime. It really started to build momentum as a movement. And nobody is really doing anything for students who also have this problem. They're not celebrities. They're not in the movies. But, you know, wow, this is so prevalent. So we launched this campaign in collaboration also with the National Women's Law Center, who had also launched a, a hashtag about this. And the whole idea was to give K-12 students a forum where they could share their experiences, where survivors 
could know that there were others out there, were allies who were also adversely affected by this, could share their experiences. And it, it was a great platform. Students used it. It's how we got a lot of our initial round of student volunteers for our youth leadership division. And I love it because it builds awareness. So we have used this hashtag approach for other things as well. An example would be when the Department of Education started opening rulemaking for the Title IX rules in 2019. You know, wow, all hands on deck. We wanted people to be aware of this, to participate in the comment sections, and to weigh in with what was important to them. So we started a, a different hashtag campaign at that time called hashtag hands off title nine. And that's not our campaign alone, but you know, the many campaigns that were there resulted in a record number of comments being issued during the proposed rulemaking period, which was very short. Um, there were over 106,000 comments wow. submitted which is, you know, easily 10x what you would normally see for an NPRM period. So we, we love hashtags. <laughs> now, I, you know, schools are required to be in compliance with Title IX, but clearly that's not happening. Also, only schools that take federal funds are required to follow Title IX. So your parochial schools may not, your, your private schools may not follow that. What do parents and students need to do to advocate for themselves, knowing that there may not be enough safeguards in place at the school they're at? There's a lot they can do. And, you know, fundamentally, what parents, guardians, students, anybody who's in an educational environment needs to remember is that that school is there to provide student-centered services to them. And some of those are academic. And some of those have to do with safety and some of those have to do with, you know, the richness of other athletics or arts opportunities that schools offer. So coming to it and remembering that demanding oversight and demanding accountability is a 100 percent acceptable way to approach it. This is not a system you have to conform to. This is a system that needs to serve you or serve your students. So what can parents and students do? One is, I think, make sure that they've got a real close read on what their PTA is doing and leveraging that platform for education. It's also a great platform to ensure that there is dialogue with either the site administrators, the principals, or school administration about what are the policies and practices at the school. Guaranteed. Every year at schools, there are incidents. I, I often use the metaphor of the fire department. You prepare for fires. You try to make your home safe. You try to drill and test on what you're going to do. And every year there are fires, right? So every year we're going to have incidents. So that PTA platform is sort of the agreed upon sanctioned vehicle that is used for a lot of that dialogue and conversation. So absolutely need to make strong use of that. Student groups are super powerful in this respect, and especially when they collaborate with one another as the voice of the student. Administrators will often try to quash, quote unquote, troublemaker students who bring up issues, who ask questions, who show up at school board meetings and ask, why is this? Or talk about things that are embarrassing, if you will. And when it's one student, you know, typically they can silence that student. 
when the students show up together en masse, they can't. They can't. The optics are wrong. It looks bad. And they, you know, they typically won't try it. And the students are articulate. They know what's wrong. And they know what was done and what wasn't done. And they know what they want. And they're good about asking for it. So those student affiliations are important. A third thing I'll mention is a sexual harassment advisory committee type structure. Where I am in Berkeley, California, this came about because of a settlement, actually, from a long ago lawsuit. But the concept was that you had input from broadly described community members. So these were stakeholders at the school. These could be teachers. These could be parents of current students. It could be alumni who are looking at how the school is addressing sexual harassment, what the school climate is like. Does it encourage a rape culture? Does it not? Does it have processes? Do staff and students know it? And a committee that meets regularly and looks at these issues and collects data about how the school district is doing on these various dimensions And that helps the school district make decisions about where to invest money in the future is very important. And the the money aspect, I I can't understate it. Most school districts don't have a line item in their budget called Title IX infrastructure. If there was one change I could make in the rules, it would be that they have to have that one line item. Public schools, because they receive federal funds under Title IX, you know, it could be a possibility to make sure that they really are investing appropriately. Private schools is a different matter. It's a little more problematic. They don't receive federal funds. Although recently under COVID, with all of the CARES Act and various recovery and relief funds, many of them actually have received federal funds. So someone is at a private school. It's worth looking into that because if they have received, for example, Paycheck Protection Act funds, that school is subject to Title IX. Um, There's going to be a lot of very surprised schools right about now. (laughs) Oh, for sure. For sure. Because the resistance is strong. And that actually, interestingly enough, also includes parochial schools who have applied for this. I I would say probably the, the last point of leverage for students, parents, et cetera, Every state has a state superintendent of education. And again, this is state government. It's not federal government. Some things work a little differently. But the obligation of that office is to make sure that for compulsory education, students come to school, that they're educated, that they gain proficiency, that they graduate. And back to our earlier point that we discussed, if schools are losing students, because they don't handle issues of sexual harassment, this is a concern for that state agency, that state superintendent. And I would really love to see state superintendents doing more to ensure that these dynamics are managed. Well, I feel like we've just barely even scratched the surface of this topic. But before we wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you know, Stop Sexual Assault in Schools, your organization, and the work you're doing, and then also other sources for Title IX issues and, and similar things? So to find Stop Sexual Assault in Schools, which is a mouthful, you can actually just <laughs> enter into your browser, S S A I S 
org, and you'll get to our website. And if you want to send us an email, it can be info at ssais.org. That's a good way to get to me. There are so many other sites that I look at, but I'll, I'll share a few that I think are especially useful. For students who have experienced sexual assault and are ready to take the, the legal route, they feel like they have tried to get their school to make it right, their school hasn't made it right, Equal Rights Advocates is an organization in San Francisco that does a lot of litigation on behalf of students with issues that they think can really make an impact and start to change what the laws are. And they, they do it through litigation at the, the local level. Their website is equalrights.org. Great organization to know about. The National Women's Law Center covers a range of issues, including more and more student K-12 issues. And their site is nwlc.org. And there is a, a brand new website that has actually been started by a Stop Sexual Assault in Schools alumnus who has started her own nonprofit. And it's called Movements for Violence Prevention. And it is also aimed largely at high school students, high school and college. Its website is mvp.us, and it's, it's a great site to move students to activism. We'll be sure to put links to all of those in this show's description. Heidi Goldstein with uh, Stop Sexual Assault in Schools, thank you so much for joining us. Deb, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been Prevention Is Now. I'm Deb Bonner, preventionist and community advocate for Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault. If you would like more information or have questions about this program, you may call our offices at 217-744-2560, or you may email me at dbonner at prairiecasa.org. Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault supports children and adult survivors of sexual violence through counseling and legal and medical advocacy in 11 central Illinois counties. Prairie Center offers coaching boys into men for male high school and college athletes, bringing in the bystander training for college campuses, and sexual harassment prevention training for businesses and organizations in our area. Our main office is located in Springfield, Illinois, with satellite offices in Jacksonville and Taylorville, Illinois, and you can find out more about our services at our website at prairiecasa.org. This program is supported by a grant from the Illinois Department of Public Health and the Illinois Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Points of view or opinions contained in this program are those of Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault and our guests and do not necessarily reflect the official positions or policies of these grantors. Thank you for listening.